0: coming down in the car this evening I was thinking I must be careful not to sing too heartily because my voice is struggling a wee bit but I got lost somewhere in the middle of that it's a, a wonderful a wonderful hymn that we can't help worship Christ let's pray Jesus you have the name of all majesty. You are Lord. We know that you're Lord of this world. Lord, we long for you to be more and more Lord of our lives. Come and meet with us now. Speak to us once more through your word. Make it real and alive to us. Amen. Two weeks ago, we began this new series in the a few chapters in John's gospel from chapter 13 through to 17. In those five chapters, John records for us much of the conversation and particularly of Jesus' teaching when He's in the upper room with His disciples before He is crucified on the cross. This is one of the great passages in the whole of the Bible for anyone who wants to know what it is to follow Jesus Christ. We have already looked at one of the other, or perhaps the other key passage. We have looked at the Sermon on the Mount in our Sunday services, Sunday morning services recently. And in the Sermon on the Mount, in a sense you get an introduction to life with Jesus. It has that feel of being the very earliest teaching that Jesus gives His disciples. Well, if the Sermon on the Mount comes right at the start for the disciples, then this passage, this farewell meal that Jesus has with his disciples has a role exactly at the end of their life with Jesus, particularly their life where the incarnate Jesus is physically present among them. One thing you notice, particularly if you you read the Sermon on the Mount and went straight into reading this passage in John's Gospel, you'd notice a real significant change. In in the passage in in Matthew's Gospel, Sermon on the Mount, there's no real sense of relationship. In a sense, Jesus could be standing with a group of strangers and, and teaching them. By the time we get to this passage, though, in John's Gospel, there's a There's a massive sense of closeness and of intimacy. Jesus calls his disciples, my own, my children, my friends. And it's this intimacy, this love that Jesus displays for his disciples that really characterizes this passage. We're calling our series, you'll know this if you were here two weeks ago, we're calling our series, Jesus and his friends. This passage that we're going to look at this evening, I hope you have it open there in front of you. John 14, page 1082. This passage here has an immediate context and it's something that you maybe didn't pick up a fortnight ago. Look back to 13 verse 33. Jesus has told these dear friends, My children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus has lived with these men for the last three years, 24-7. He has been their master. He's been their leader, and he's become their friend. They've come to rely on Jesus entirely. And now, after all that they've been through together, he tells them that he's going to leave them. And that they can't come with him to the place that he's going to. So the disciples are distraught. They fear that Jesus is going to abandon them. That's why when we pick up in verse 1 of our chapter, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. Jesus is saying, Yes, I am going away, but no, you don't need to be troubled. You can trust God and you can trust me in this. You'll notice there the footnote to verse 1 offers an alternative translation. You trust in God, trust also in me. Actually, I don't think that there's an awful lot of difference between those two. In either case, what's striking about this verse is that Jesus links himself directly with God. Any Jew of Jesus' time would know that the only person whom you trust, the only correct object of our trust is God. So for any person to come along and to say, well, you know the way you trust God? Trust me. For a person to say that is a a clear and direct claim to deity. Jesus is saying, I am God. And of course, we're not surprised to see Jesus say that because we've seen him say that time and time again. But it's because he's God that he can reassure these disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In verse 2, Jesus tells them why they shouldn't be troubled. The very reason, well, it's because he's going to prepare a place where one day they will be back together once more. Jesus is leaving so that he can prepare a permanent home for them, together with him and the Father, all the presence of God. If it were not so, Jesus gently rebukes them, I would have told you. You don't really believe, says Jesus, that after all that we've been through together that I'm just going to leave. You don't really believe that, do you? After you committing yourselves to following me, to being my disciples, that I'm just going to abandon you? No. If that were the case, I would have told you before now. Well, John's gospel uh, is full of all sorts of references to Jesus' departure. It's referred to sometimes as Jesus going, his returning to the Father, the time when he'll be glorified or when he'll be lifted up. All of those refer to the same event. It's the time when Jesus would return to be with the Father by way of the cross and by way of the resurrection. That time when Jesus would save us from our sins. At first glance, And probably this is the way I've mostly understood this. In verse 2, it looks as though Jesus is saying, I'm going back to the Father so that after I get there, I'll be able to prepare a place for you. Actually, I think what Jesus is saying is more like this. I am returning to my Father's house and by my returning by the very manner of it, this journey of redemption, this is going to be the means for me preparing a place for you with God. Friends, the only way that you and I can live in the presence of God and enjoy His lovely dwelling place is because Jesus went that way. Via the death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. It's because he made that journey that we have an eternal home waiting for us. I said a moment ago that one of the things that characterizes this whole passage in in John's gospel is the closeness, the intimacy, uh, the personal nature of Jesus and his disciples' interactions. Look at verse 3. I am going there to prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me where I am. At the very moment when the disciples think they're losing Jesus, Jesus comes and he says, No, this is all about me preparing a place where we'll be together. You with me always. Friends, I grew up in a church that was occupied, perhaps preoccupied, with talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. I think we now are in a church often where the second coming of Jesus is barely mentioned. We know, we know that the second coming of Jesus has massive implications for us. We know that when he returns, that'll be the end of history as we know it. We know that Wrongs will be made right. Whenever Jesus returns, we'll discover and we'll understand things about our lives that we have never known and never understood. Friends, but none of those implications of Jesus coming should should come before or stand over this. Jesus is coming back so that we can be with him. Jesus came into this world to make a way that we could be with him. And Jesus is returning so that we can finally be fully and forever with him. I will come back to take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. Whenever Jesus says in verse 4, you know the way to the place where I'm going, in effect he's saying, I've talked about my believing a good number of times now. I've told you that I'm going to be killed. I've told you that I'm going to rise again. So that you, you must understand by now that when I leave, this is what's happening. I'm going to die, rise again, and return to be with my Father. Surely you understand this by now. Well, In verse 5, it's obvious that the disciples don't understand. Thomas speaks up, but I think he's really speaking for all of them. Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? The uncertainty is still there. The fear is still there. Lord, where are you going? It seems that by this stage, even after three years of living day and daily with Jesus... The disciples have forgotten what Jesus means to them. They want to get their theories straight. They want answers. Jesus, where are you going and how can we get there? They're a bit like the people who want to read the right books so that they can get all the right answers. They're beginning to lose grip on a living relationship with God. They're looking for the how-to books to guide them on their way. Jesus sees what's going on. So whenever Thomas asks his question, Jesus answers, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He says, Thomas, you don't need to know the answers. You need to know me because I am the way. and the truth. I'm the life. I'm everything that you need and everything that you'll ever need. Look at the articles there. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And friends, it's important You know that, but it's so important that we remind ourselves of this, particularly now and particularly in the culture that we live in. We're being told, and and we will be told, believe me, it's only beginning, Jesus is a way to God. Jesus offers us a truth. Life with Jesus is one type of life that we might choose to live. Friends, Jesus tells us, God himself says, I am no one pleasant alternative. I'm not one choice in the marketplace. Jesus is the only way to God. And just in case we miss the point, he reiterates it in the second half of the sentence. No one comes to the Father except through me. I was reading recently an article in Christianity Today in which my theology professor, Dr. Packer, was answering a question. Can sincere followers of other religions be saved? You'd need to know Dr. Packer, but he is a, a way of, of saying things almost in less words than you can imagine possible. The direct answer, he says, is No. But then he continues, he says the New Testament exegeted rationally without reading into it what cannot be read out of it tells us that the Christian faith is true for everyone and that all need God's forgiveness through Jesus. Packer is affirming Jesus' own words here in John chapter 14. Jesus really is the way. The truth and the life, no one, not you, not I, not any of our friends or our family, no matter how sincere they are, no one will come to the Father except through him. I'll speed up as we go here, but if you look at the the next three verses, seven to nine you'll notice that they all have to do with knowing. Jesus said, if you really knew me, you'd know my Father as well. From now on, you do know Him, and you've seen Him. Now, Philip must have missed the implications of what Jesus has been saying almost right throughout these verses. He's missing what Jesus said in verse 1 when he identified himself as God. So Philip still asks to see God. Lord, show us the Father. And that will be enough for us. Folks, I wouldn't want to be too hard on Philip at this point. Philip grew up steeped in a Judaism which believed in one and only one God, a monotheistic faith. Philip hasn't made the connection that Jesus and the Father are one. Friends, we tend to preoccupy ourselves with the question is Jesus God? But actually, I think we may be coming at it the wrong way. Because whenever we come at it that way, when we ask the question, is Jesus God? We do that because we think we know who God is. We have a picture of God in our head and we measure Jesus to see if he matches up. Is Jesus God? The question that I think the Gospels force us to ask is a different one. We don't know God quite as well as we imagine. The real question facing those disciples and facing us today, could God really be this Jesus? This Jesus whom we see before us, whose life the disciples observed. Jesus says to him, don't you know me, Philip? Even after all these years I've been among you, all this time I've been among you, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. For Philip and the other disciples, I think the reason they struggled to believe this is that it was too good to be true. That God would really be like this wonderful person that they had spent the last three years of their life with. Could the character of God really be as wonderful as this? Yes, says Jesus, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Friends, wouldn't you love it, I mean really, wouldn't you love it if God, the almighty God of the universe, our Father in heaven, turned out to be someone who loved the poor, someone who took on the cause of the downtrodden, someone who reached out in grace to the sinful. Wouldn't you love it if your God was the type who exposed the hypocrisy of political leaders, who showed up sham religiosity, and he did so easily and naturally by his own integrity and humility? Wouldn't you love it if almighty God turned out to be interested in individual people, precisely the kind of people whom whom everyone else ignores, and wouldn't you love it if he gave his life for you because he loved you? God has done all these things and more. Jesus did these things. And He is God. These are the very things that God does. If you've seen Jesus, you have seen God. If you want to know God, get to know Jesus. Friends, I, I have other stuff here that I could say, but I'm not going to. Let's bring our thoughts to a close. This passage, and so much of what John talks about in these chapters, is about knowing Jesus Christ. I don't think I can put it better than the way Eugene Peterson puts it. I just read this recently. Jesus is the person in whom we see God present among us. God dwelling among us. God here and now. Jesus calls us out of our libraries and classrooms and lecture halls where we're studying about him. And I would want to add, Jesus calls us from our sermons where we're studying about him. Jesus challenges our obsessive preoccupation with knowing about God. And he says, Look at what's right in front of you. Know me. I am God. Friends, don't let's ever make the mistake. We don't gather here week by week to learn more stuff about God. I hope I never preach and teach the Bible so that we know more stuff about John's gospel. Friends, we want to know Jesus. We want to know him because to know him is to know God. We want to know him and to love him and to become his friends. That's the invitation. That's what we're being invited to here as we meet with Jesus in John's Gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for sending Jesus into the world. We know that after all the words that you had spoken we still only knew so much of you. But now that the word has been made flesh and has made his home among us, now that Jesus has walked our roads and lived our lives, we know you. We can know you so much better. Lord, help us to make the one pursuit of the rest of our lives, to know Jesus. Lord, help us not to be content with half-truths about Jesus, but to delve deep into the revelation of Jesus here in your Word, to throw open our lives to the presence of Jesus' Spirit. Lord, we want to know Jesus. And we know that as you draw us to Jesus, You draw us right into the very heart of your being. Lord, we thank you that that's your goal for us. We thank you that you're a God who, not not a God who tells us about himself, but a God who gives himself to us, lives among us, dies for us, that we might be your friends. Lord, we thank you. We humbly ask that you would lead us into this mystery and this wonder. Amen.